Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, February 6, 2022. It focuses on the results of fearfully moving ahead without waiting on God. The message to all who will listen is, waiting on God when anxiety arises is the best option, the only option for God's people. Now, here is Pastor Mike Nyvert. Let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, being with us today. Wherever we go, wherever we are, you're always with us, and we trust you to speak now. I pray that you would accomplish in each of us everything that you desire to accomplish, that you would correct and rebuke and train in righteousness as your word goes forth. Help me to speak clearly so that my listeners and I can hear what your Holy Spirit has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I've done the math correctly, it was 1979 when my family and I drove from our small town in Iowa to the Los Angeles metro area for a vacation with relatives. Aunt Pat, my dad's elder sister, met us in that area along with her sons who were, especially the younger of the two, roller coaster crazy. My siblings and I, as far as I can recall, had never ridden a roller coaster in our entire lives, not even one of those little dinky ones that bounce along at a county fair. On one of our first days in sunny California, we made our way in our Cutlass Supreme station wagon to Magic Mountain, an amusement park in Valencia, California. Cousin Brian could hardly contain himself as he gushed about the world's tallest wooden roller coaster, the Colossus, which had opened just about a year before this. How many of you have been to an amusement park in a large metropolitan area and tried to catch a ride that's just opened? My siblings and I had never been through such a long wait for anything. I was a little nervous when I stepped into a line. More than an hour later, not on the ride yet, my heart was in my throat. I heard the now close at hand screams of the coaster's riders as they plunged down 115 feet from top of the hill to the bottom. I was far beyond jittery. I was approaching panic mode. A short time later, we were next in line. My cousin was excited about the ride. I was ready to bail. The chicken's exit was calling my name. I turned to Brian and swallowing hard said, I can't do this. With that, I turned and walked away down the stairway of shame. Minutes later, those who had had the courage to ride bounded through the exit, grinning from ear to ear, wide-eyed. They told me about how awesome it had been to plunge toward the earth and then be jerked back toward the sky. They talked about the tight curves and moments of zero gravity as they flew over bumps and chided me for skipping out. Later that day, after trying another coaster, a metal beast with loops and corkscrews, I found myself waiting in line again for the Colossus. You'll be happy to know that this time I did not take the coward's way out. I sat down in a seat on the train and enjoyed each and every drop and climb and curve on the world's tallest wooden roller coaster. I think I might have even said let's do it again as we ran through the exit tunnel. 
Looking back, I chuckle at my reluctance to ride the Colossus. It was, by most coaster enthusiast standards, a pretty tame ride. I've ridden much crazier, much more twisted, much more upside down and taller tracks since 1979. I still haven't made it to Cedar Point, my cousin Brian's favorite park, a 364-acre wonderland in northern Ohio which boasts 17 roller coasters. Maybe someday. Maybe not. Moving on. I have a question for you. Have you ever run away from something which caused your knees to knock together? When I was a teen, eager to share my faith with friends and praying for the opportunity to do so, the way opened more than once, but I couldn't loosen my tongue from the roof of my mouth, which had gone dry. The moment passed and nothing was said, over and over. I did, just before we moved, finally speak up and share my faith with this friend. After deciding for sure I wanted to ask Susan out on a date, I tried multiple times to call her on the phone in the dorm hallway. As the ringing started, I'd hang up, gasping for air. I couldn't do it, but I really wanted to. I'm not sure, but for some reason, the number nine sticks in my head. I think it was the ninth time I dialed the number. I let it go through and secured a yes from the girl of my dreams, and we have been married for 34-plus years now. Those are my good stories, the ones where I finally mustered the courage to do what needed to be done. There were other instances where I never followed through or when I lied to cover up my fears. Not my best moments. I tell you this not so that you can feel sorry for me or look down on me with disdain, but so you can recall the less than beautiful times in your life when you chickened out and ran away. I'm not trying to stir up regret but to create a bit of sympathy for a character that we're going to talk about as we move along today. Hannah, Samuel's mom, waited on the Lord for fullness and found it. She prayed and God answered. She was given a son. Samuel, her son, waited on the Lord and received guidance. He heard God's voice and faithfully passed along God's word to Eli, the priest, even though that message was not all sunshine and butterflies. It's not been so long since you've heard God's message to Eli concerning his family and his sons that you can't recall at least the gist of it. The aging priest was told judgment was coming because the man had failed to restrain his blaspheming, greedy, ungodly boys as they took advantage of the people. The morning after Samuel had heard the terrible news concerning his mentor, he'd been reluctant to speak up. But when push came to shove... He laid it all out on the table. Eli asked what God said, insisted Samuel tell him. And so, in verse 18 of chapter 3, it says, So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. It took a ton of courage to hide nothing from Eli, but Samuel did it. He spoke the truth boldly, fully. Sadly, we're not going to focus exclusively on Samuel's bravery. We're not going to focus on the speaker of truth. Instead, we're going to examine a portion of the life of a man who acted much less courageously, a man who, when the chips were down, did not wait on God, did not do what God commanded. Before we get to this guy, let me set the scene. Eli and his sons are dead. Hophni and Phinehas, the ungodly sons of Eli, died in battle while carrying the Ark of the Covenant. 
Eli, upon receiving word of his boy's demise and news of the taking of the ark by the Philistines, fell out of his chair, broke his neck, and died. Crazy stuff, but certainly in keeping with the word of God spoken against them through Samuel. For a period of time after this, the Philistines ruled over Israel, but their subjugation didn't last forever. After 20-plus years, God acted on behalf of Israel. Under Samuel's leadership, the people returned to their Lord, and he answered their pleas for national restoration. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10-13, to 13, we have this. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. God was good to his people. He confirmed his love for them, and Samuel continued to rule as judge under God's guidance. Sadly, when this godly man grew old and his sons began to take up the mantle of leadership, things started to fall apart. Samuel's sons were corrupt, turning aside to dishonest gain, accepting bribes to pervert justice. Sounds a lot like Eli's sons. The people, frustrated with this turn of events, approached Samuel. Their words are found in 1 Samuel 8, 5. You are old, they said, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Samuel was stunned. He cried out to God, and God answered. God told this man to give the people what they wanted, to anoint a king over them. He further instructed Samuel to warn Israel of the consequences of rejecting God's rule to be like the other nations. Samuel boldly spoke the truth once again. The people heard God's rebuke but insisted on following their chosen course despite the costs God said would be exacted by the man who would wear the crown. You know Israel's first king, don't you? His name was Saul and he eventually became everything God had cautioned he might become. He acted in the terrible ways predicted through Samuel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Saul's downward spiral didn't begin on the first day. He was, for a short time, a man whom God could direct and use for the good of his people. Shortly after Samuel anointed Saul as king and the man took the throne, an Israeli city, Jabesh-Gilead, came under attack. The men of Jabesh-Gilead tried to make peace with the Ammonites, laying siege outside their walls. They begged for a treaty, saying they'd be subject to the Ammonites in exchange for their lives. How the Ammonites responded was a little over the top. I'm reading 1 Samuel 11:2 now. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on Israel. Not the greatest terms of peace ever. The men of the city begged for a week to consider them, and when this short reprieve was granted, sent messengers to see if any in Israel would come to rescue them. Word got to Saul in Gebeah. He was appalled at the terms and sent word back to the men of Jabesh Gilead, assuring them they would be defended. The messengers dispatched. Paul mustered 330,000 men to march against the Ammonite invaders. Toward the end of 1 Samuel 11, in verse 11, we get Samuel's 
report of the results. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Israel's enemies are defeated. Everyone got to keep their right eye. Woohoo! King Saul's the best. You'd say that too if you got to keep your right eye. It's actually God though, isn't it? God, who's the best? He's the one who saved them. The guy they opted for over God was just a part of God's plan to save them. Anyway, they're happy with their choice for king. You know, sometimes even bad choices yield good results for a time. At other times, the bad choices we make have dire consequences. Chapter 13 bears this truth out. Let me read the first part of this chapter. The beginning of a rather ugly chapter in Israel's history is found in 1 Samuel 13, 1-7. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gebeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had a trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand of the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. What a mess. Israel has a king. That's what they wanted. They also have an enemy. The king is supposed to help them against their enemy, but the enemy is overwhelmingly stronger. What do they do in this situation? Do they turn back to God? Do they cry out to the one who had rescued their ancestors time and time again? That would have been the wise thing to do. When you're in trouble, prayer's the best. It's the best first resort, second resort, third resort, fourth resort. It's the best resort, period. Calling on God Almighty when life is coming apart at the seams is the best plan of all. It is the only plan for the people who are part of God's kingdom. It is not the plan of Saul's people. They gathered together to fight their enemies, saw the machines of war, and ran off to hide. And I love how Samuel tells all the different places they had to hide. In caves, in thickets, in rocks, uh, in pits, in cisterns. He lays it all out. Kind of reminds me of another Israelite man who lived years before Samuel and Saul. Does the name Gideon ring a bell? I hope it does. Let me read a bit of his story from Judges chapter 6. I could read a bunch more, but I'm going to let verses 11 through 16 cover for the rest. Pay attention to where Gideon is and what God says to him in these verses. So here we go. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Bezreite. 
where his son, Gideon, was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon is hiding out in a wine press, threshing wheat so maybe he can keep at least some of his harvest. The Midianites, Israel's enemy du jour, have been stealing everybody's crops. Gideon doesn't want his to be taken from him, so he's hiding out. God comes to this frightened man. God speaks to him. God calls him a mighty warrior and assures him he's not alone. Does Gideon immediately get on board? Nope. He tests God. He tests him a couple times. Wet fleece, dry ground, dry fleece, wet ground. You remember the story, perhaps? When he's satisfied that God has come to help, he's all in. What does God do with this man? He gathers together a great number of men who will fight and then whittles that group down to just 300. And with those 300, he defeats the enemies of God who covered the valley floor, it says in Judges 7:12, as thick as locusts. Fearful men who trust God are most often rescued. So in reality, Saul and his armies are in the perfect spot. God delights in showing the world his power through the weakness of his people. He's more than once defeated powerful invaders to show his glory. Maybe you've heard the song, Our God. I love the message of this worship anthem. It says, our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God, and if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? Do Saul and his men call on the name of this great, strong, high, and lifted up God? Let's see. We're ready for 1 Samuel 13, 8-12. He, that is Saul, waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. We've been talking about waiting on God. Hannah waited on God and received fullness. God granted her prayer for a son who would be fully devoted to the Lord God of Israel. Samuel, the son that God gave and whom Hannah gave to Eli the priest, waited on God and received a word from the Lord, something which was rare at the time. This man, Samuel, still a part of Israel's history, continues to wait on God in his guidance, and God keeps giving it to him. 
even though a king now reigns over Israel, God's word comes through Samuel. Saul now has an opportunity to wait on the Lord, and what does he do? He waits until things seem to be completely lost. He sees everyone running for the hills and decides he's waited long enough for Samuel. He grabs the bull by the horns, both literally and figuratively, and offers a sacrifice to God, something he is not allowed to do. His fear led him to sin against God. Listen carefully. Fear led him to sin against the only God who could rescue him. The result? The Philistines continued to wreak havoc on God's people for a time. The rescue they needed was put off. They suffered for years longer at the hands of their enemy. 1 Samuel 14:52 says, All the days of Saul there was bitter war with the Philistines. Now, we're not going to read it, but I want you to know that in chapter 15, which begins immediately after these words, if we read it, we'd see Saul once again ignoring God's commands. We'd see him going his own way, doing as he pleases, and in the end, being rejected by God as king. When you are unwilling to wait on God, when you act in fear instead of in faith, catastrophe is coming down the pike. With that truth in mind, let me ask you a question. What obedience are you putting off because you fear what might happen if you follow God? Are you headed toward the chicken's exit because you're unsure of God's power and might? I wonder. Might God have had a Gideon-like plan to defeat the Philistines with just a few men if Saul had remained steadfast and sure in his faith? We can't know that because Saul didn't choose obedience. But I have to wonder what God might have done. Because Saul chose his own way, he missed out on God's best. He waited on nothing and got nothing. Are you trying to figure out how to manipulate life so that you don't have to face what scares you? Repent. Reject what seems oh so wise to you and trust God. Wait on him. Are your fears many? Maybe. Maybe not. Whether they're many or few, I urge you in the next moments to take each and every one of the things that stir up anxiety in your heart, take them to God and ask him to do his best. I want to close again with singing this song that we've made as our theme for this series. I urge you to trust God with all that terrifies you. Wait on him and experience the freedom and the victory that he has for you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. I wait for the Lord, and in His Word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. I for the Lord I wait, I 
could my whole being wait? I wait for the Lord, and in His word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning light. I wait for the Lord, I wait, I wait. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. I wait for the put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. I wait for the your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love.
We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.